0: Thanks, Annabelle, and um, thanks, Kathy, too. I know my readings have been a little bit scattered, so thanks, everyone, for kind of putting up with that. Part of it is just to say there's lots in this story to read, and we, we won't read all of it in one sitting here. The encouragement would be, if you'd like to read all of them, uh, please join us in our life groups midweek, and then you'll have an opportunity to uh, explore the passages at, at, a, at a fuller length with, I guess, a little bit more time to think them through. What I want to do tonight, however, is to continue our series... Uh, on the life of David, as Jeff told us. And uh, it's interesting, isn't it? This story is old, it's ancient, it's got some really interesting stuff in it. It uh, might even be some stuff that w- would uh, cause you to scratch your head. Can I remind you, at the end of the sermon, we're going to have a question and answer time. And if, you're, if you have a question along the way, please bring them up, because it makes it, uh, you, you can clarify stuff that you, otherwise you might go away shaking your head going, what did that mean? So how about I pray and ask that God would help us to, uh, to make sense of this uh, passage tonight. Heavenly Father, thanks so much uh, that this account of David and Saul uh, has been preserved for us in the Bible. Thanks that we can read it in our own language and thanks, Lord, that it echoes through 3,000 years to us tonight. Father, please help us to understand it and give us energy and focus, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in terms of trying to think about how to apply it, I thought I'd I'd, uh, introduce you to an everyday problem. I had a wonderful uh, moment on the weekend. Uh, Carrie was here doing the Equip uh, Women's Conference and she told me that Ruby was going to be having a play date with one of her friends. She said, no problems, I I can do the responsible parenting thing, I can drop Ruby off. I said, "Uh, where are we going? And Carrie told me it was at the netball and that uh, Ruby's friend would be there. And so I drove to the netball at, uh, next to the Bunnings uh, over in uh, Nurelland in, uh, there. Have you guys been there? Do you know how big that is? Uh, there's not only car park one, two, and three, but there's overflow car parking, which is stretching off into eternity somewhere over there. So I turned up, and I thought, no problems, this will be, um, be fine. I said to Ruby, uh, do you know what team she plays for? Ruby said, no. Do you know what colour their uniform is? She said, no. I said, uh, well, this should be easy. And Isaac said to me, are you being sarcastic, Daddy? And I said, yes. (laughs) It was quite wild. Anyway, as we walked around uh, 57 teams trying to find uh, Ruby's friend, which we eventually did, um, and she wasn't playing netball, she was watching netball, which made it even harder. But anyway, as we did that, I saw a mum getting stuck into a coach. And it was pretty, they were pretty animated. It was kind of red face kind of stuff. Because this girl had turned up. I don't know if you've met her before. Um, A girl called Misunderstanding uh that's a little joke there we go good uh so she had turned up and what had happened was uh, the coach was saying no I didn't mean that and the mum was kind of just going going for gold on this uh, on this coach I was like man something has gone wrong here there's a, a, a clash of understanding and when misunderstanding comes up like that there's only one song that's in my in my heart when I've been misunderstood uh it's this one here oh lord please don't let me be misunderstood does anyone know this song Am I just showing? I'm really old at this point. I see Ali's hand up. Good. Uh, It's the cry of those who've been misunderstood. And when we're misunderstood, we want to just be made clear. But it's not always that we've just been misunderstood. Sometimes, sometimes there is something in our life which would rightly be categorized as an enemy. Now, do you guys remember this scene? Does anyone here know what movie this is from? Sorry? Lord of the Rings? Yeah, and we've got the hobbits hiding down here. Who's this guy? A death eater. No, well, that's crossing over. Yes, it's almost a death eater. He's a ring wraith, I think. But anyway, suffice to say, he's an enemy that will never stop. The hobbits didn't really do anything wrong, but they have an intractable enemy, someone who will never let them go. They are being chased and pursued. Maybe, just maybe, you have an enemy in your life, someone that you didn't intend to put off, but they are chasing you, they're pursuing, they will not let go. You have an enemy in your life. And if you have someone like that, what you cry out for, I think, is justice. I want it to be made right. This is unfair, it's not right. And we want justice. And maybe we indulge in a little revenge fantasy. Now, revenge fantasy is where you think, I've got an enemy, I want this to stop. I want some powerful way to reverse this and make it stop. It looks a little bit like this, I think. Right? I want to, you know, you can feel so powerless when you've got an enemy. You can feel so powerless, and what you want is Arnie to rock up with a rocket launcher and sort it out. Do, do you know this feeling? Maybe not the Arnie one, but it, do you know this feeling? Do you know this feeling of having someone who's against you, being misunderstood? Do you know this feeling? And if you do, what should you do that's godly? I put the That's godly in brackets because there's lots of things that you could choose to do, but not all of them are godly. So tonight we're going to look at this story and we're going to think, what do we learn from David about how to respond in a godly way to when we have misunderstanding or an enemy who's against us? And we're going to start off in the desert of Ziph, uh, which is in Israel. And I want you to go actually to the bit just before where we read tonight. So I think it's about page 292 in your Bibles. Be great to have it open. I'm going to read verses uh, 13 to 18. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he did not go there. Saul's the king who's opposed to our hero, David. David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give him into his hands. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learnt that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went up to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. Now, what do we see here? Well, the first thing we see is that David is pursued. He has a mortal enemy, literally mortal enemy. King Saul does not want David to take over. He's being pursued. But he actually has a very unexpected ally. Did you see who that was? Who's his unexpected ally? A guy called Jonathan. Jonathan is related to Saul in what way? Oh, his son. The king's son comes and finds David. David. Incidentally, this is pretty interesting, isn't it? The king's son can find David, but the king can't. That's just a side point. I've been preaching it all day. I just noticed that. Um, Anyway, Jonathan comes to uh, aid of David and strengthens him. And I want to see two things about what it means for Jonathan to turn up. The first is something that we love. We love friendship, right? Friendship's fantastic. But I want you to see that there's something better than just the person who will text you... uh, what's going on in, in, uh, in your friendship group, or, or send you a cat video, or whatever. There's something better than that. It's a thing called Christian friendship, and Christian friendship is something really beautiful. It's companionship, like family, that encourages and points the other to their living God. It's not just cat videos, it's you and I share God in common, and I am going to point you to our God, that's Christian friendship, and that's something that we all want. In fact, it's in uh, one of our values over here, you can see down the bottom there, it says, enduring. We want to build apprentices who last, and one of the ways we talk about it is three questions. Where are you weak and in danger of falling? Now, Jonathan knew that Saul was in danger, that Saul, that David was in danger of falling, and so he came to find him. Who knows you well enough to ask this question? Well, our idea would be we find someone who is a trusted friend who can look out for us. And that's who Jonathan was to David. And then it says, who are you strengthening to run the race to the end? We want to be a church that looks out for one another, that actually helps us to keep going. And that's Christian friendship, and I think it's on view here between David and Jonathan. But there's one more thing. This friendship expresses itself in a covenant And covenant is one of these big ideas in the Bible. If you don't know covenant, we're going to introduce it to you tonight. God makes covenants. What is a covenant? A covenant is a solemn and binding agreement between two people concerning their future, obligations, consequences, and commitment. Now, I reckon most of us last night saw a covenant be made. Who saw the covenant being made last night? who definitely didn't watch it because we don't like that sort of thing. Darren, I'm not surprised at all. Paul, we'll catch you up a little bit later, mate. We'll give you some... I think I recorded it. I can send it your way. It'll be great. Uh, Here's the thing. What we watched was two people solemnly pledging their future together. That's what we watched, wasn't we, in in the wedding? We saw that. And we make great promises, and that's a covenant, but it's not only marriage. God makes a covenant with Israel when He founds the nation with Abraham. He does it with Moses, and he does it with David later on. But here we see it can be personal too, and David and Jonathan make a covenant, a commitment to care for each other. It's beautiful. But everything isn't beautiful because Saul is hot on the trot. And what we're going to see is we're going to meet a mountain where David is going around one side of the mountain and Saul is coming around the other. It looks like everything is about to end in tears. Have a look with me in chapter 23, verses 26 to 29. Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. That is why they call this place Selah, Hama, Lakoth. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. What does that wonderful uh, name mean? It means Rock of Parting. They went in two two ways at that particular place. All right, uh, can anyone tell me what this magnificent structure is? (laughs) Yes, it is. It's a toilet. And if you find a toilet in the forest, are you happy when you see this sign? Yeah. Yeah, of course you are. Because do you want to go into a toilet when it says this? No, we don't naturally do that. That is not a good or appropriate thing. And if you don't know this already, if that sign's on there, don't go in. Okay, that's the idea. I want to show you an awkward toilet moment that happens in the Bible. Have a look with me at chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. After Saul was returning from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way, a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave, and everyone says, awkward. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I'll give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Wow, weird, hey, it's pretty unusual. So what's going on? Well, first of all, uh, Saul thought it was a private place, and he wasn't alone. His enemy was at the back. And when that happens, the guys, it's funny, there's no conversation about, oh, wow, this is really awkward. Uh -uh." They don't say that at all. What do they say? They say, man, this is what the prophecy of God says. He's in your hands. Go kill him. Now I've been looking at this and I'm actually, I'm not 100% convinced that when the men said this is what was prophesied, that it was actually a prophecy of God. Uh, Because it says, uh, God said in verse 4, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now does God really give us the opportunity to deal with our enemies however we wish? Anyway, I'm not sure whether it is a prophecy or not, but the guys are going, get him, get him. Get him. And David is so persuaded that he gets up, gets all the way close to Saul. He has a knife sharp enough to cut his coat, cuts his coat, part of his coat off, and then has a bit of a problem. He has a bit of a moment. He only does part of the job. He just cuts the corner of the coat. He does not cut Saul. Why is that? Because he wants to make an appeal to his enemy. He wants to make an appeal to his enemy. Have a look at verses 5 to 10. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Then David went out of the cave and called to Saul, My Lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. That basically means he just lay flat on his face. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. A couple of things to note in this passage. First of all, there's this really old thing. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. Have you guys heard of a conscience? Yes? Has anyone listened to their conscience recently? What's your conscience? Your conscience is that voice at the back of your head that says, this is not a good thing to do. What do we generally do with our conscience? Be quiet. You're annoying me. Shh, quiet. Just, this is good. I like it don't talk anymore. That's what we do with our consciences typically. But what happened for David? He heard his conscience and it led him to repentance. He says, I did the wrong thing. It says he was conscience stricken, which means he felt bad and he took action. That's great. He then explains why he didn't kill Saul. And he didn't kill Saul because it says here multiple times, he is the Lord's anointed. Now what does this word mean, anointed? Anyone Remember? Oil, that's right. He's had oil put on him. He's been chosen to be the king and been anointed or had oil poured onto him. And David says, I am not going to kill the Lord's anointed. I think it's partly because he respects God, which is the right thing to do. Secondly, he's also the Lord's anointed. And I think if he kind of gets started on let's kill the Lord's anointed, he's a bit worried about where it will go. So he doesn't kill the Lord's anointed. And it's an opportunity foregone. You notice that he has to stop his men. From killing Saul he doesn't kill Saul and then he has to hold the boys back don't do it we should not do this why because of this does anyone know where this is somewhere in Canberra high court fantastic if you've been on your excursion to Canberra you will I'm I'm sure you'll have seen this this is the full bench of the high court it's where seven judges go you can't go any higher you appeal in Australia to the high court and you're done David is making an appeal to the high court here, and it's not in Canberra. Have a listen to what he says in verses 12 to 15. I want you to tell me who his court is. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, and so my hand will not touch you. Against whom is the King of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Who's the high court to whom David's appealing? It's God. He says, God will be my judge. God is the one to whom David entrusts his case. He's saying, ultimately, I don't want you, Saul, to do, to do wrong to me. But I'm saying, God, you see me, you vindicate me, you take care of this. I'm not going to do it with my own hands. And Saul responds beautifully, actually. He says, you're more righteous than I. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? What's the answer to that? No, you don't let your enemy get away unharmed. May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king. And that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. He's saying, Don't kill all my relatives when you become king. Please spare them. And in verse 22, it says, So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home. What's he done? David's made a covenant here with Saul. He said, I won't kill your boys. I won't kill you boys, it won't come down to me. I'll become the king, but I'm not going to wipe out your line. Now, this is potentially the cave, uh, the cave of Adjulam, where David uh, was hiding. Uh, And in Psalm 142, we read of David, it's actually in the psalm, it says, while David was in the cave. So you can read this psalm and see what he was feeling. He wrote a song about it in the book of Psalms. And if you want to chase it up later, have a look. It's beautiful, seeing David cry out. But what happens next? How do we get from David being pursued by Saul to the chapter that uh, was read for us by Annabelle, where Saul dies? Let me take you through it really quickly. In chapter 25, as we saw last week, we saw that David is spared from killing Nabal, a fool, by Abigail. In chapter 26, uh, we have a uh, game of Sleeping Lions. Do you guys remember Sleeping Lions? This morning, did not know what sleeping lions are. Can I just have a show of hands? Does anyone know what sleeping lions is? Great, okay. So, what happens is uh, David comes across Saul, who's come out to kill him again, and finds him sleeping. He ducks into the camp, grabs Saul's spear and the water jug by his head, and then runs away and says, Hey, Abner. This is the, this is the guy who's supposed to be guarding the king's life. Hey, Abner, are you doing a good job of looking after the king? And he goes, yes, of course I am. And he says, well, why am I holding the king's water jug and spear? And then Saul goes, oh, that's a bit awkward again. Um, Maybe. And David says, look, you can tell I'm not trying to kill you. Look at this. This is proof I could have killed you. I didn't. And Saul says, all right, you're right. I've done the wrong thing. I'm sorry. Again. Uh, In the meantime, David decides that it's probably not going to work out very well because Saul doesn't seem to have a very good memory. So in chapter 27, we see David thought to himself, One of these days I'll be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me. And so that's what he does. He goes to the Philistines. And the Philistine uh, ruler, their enemies, says to David, All right, you're welcome here, so long as you do good things for us as Philistines. And David tells him that he's doing good things for him, and they get on famously. In, uh, In chapter 28, Saul does something terrible. He goes to a medium and ask them to bring up the dead spirit of Samuel. And Samuel says to him, dude, this is not a good idea. I'm going to tell you in advance, you're going to die, and so are all your sons. It doesn't work out very well at all. And as they're coming to the battle, uh, David's traipsing along with this Philistine commander, and the rest of the Philistine commanders go, isn't this bloke an Israelite? And they go, we don't want him coming to the battle with us because he might start fighting at the back of the the army. So get rid of him. So the commanders say, get rid of David. As David's been away from home, his home, a place called Ziklag, great name, you're never going to forget it. The home of Ziklag has been burnt to the ground and all his family and all the relatives of his soldiers have been taken captive. So in a heroic effort, they go out after the band of raiders, capture all their family back and end up going home with all the plunder pretty good story you should read it then we get to chapter 31 now uh who are these two blokes harry and william okay which is the closest to the throne in this picture sorry william you're right cerise what number is he does anyone know number two correct uh who is number one Charlie, oh, ah, oh, that's good, that's good. Oh, he, the queen is the current ruler, so that's good. She's number one. Number two in line is, well, number one in line, but the next one, is Charlie. And then we've got uh, Will. What number's Harry? Okay, all right, you've got the idea. We've got the idea of a royal line here. I want you to see the royal line comes to an end. Have a look with me. In chapter 31, I think it was page 299. In chapter 31, we see a terrible, a terrible day. Now, the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons Jonathan, Abinadab, and Melchishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it, so Saul took his own sword and fell on it. What happens on this day, on this terrible day for Israel, is there's an end of the line. Saul dies, and the next three inheritors of the line, one, two, three, all gone. Now, for David, this is an amazing outcome, isn't it? His enemy is taken care of. Did David kill him? And so at some level, it feels like a bit of a victory. We should celebrate the victory. David is going to win. He's going to become the king of Israel. But for David, that's not how he feels. Jonathan is his best friend, and the nation has just suffered a terrible loss. And so instead of singing and celebrating, we see in 2 Samuel chapter 1 that there's something else going on. Have a look at verse 17, 2 Samuel chapter 1. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. And he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. In other words, he says, we're going to sing a sad song. I'm teaching you a sad song. Today is a terrible day. And we're going to commission a song of weeping. And so we see Saul and Jonathan in verse 23. In life, they were loved and admired. In death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Jerusalem, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery. And says in verse 25, how the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lay slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. Now, I don't know if you've heard this turn of phrase before. The mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. It's from the Bible. It doesn't come from anywhere else. It's from the Bible. The first English translation of the Bible has how the mighty have fallen and that's when it came into English usage. It's from here. How the mighty have fallen. And so he doesn't take up a victory song, he takes up a lament, a song of mourning. Alright, there we go. That's a 3,000 year old story, done. What do we do with it? What do we do with it? It's, it's interesting, it's engaging, but how does it touch my life? I want to show you three principles I think for dealing with enemies or those who are misunderstanding us. Number one, I want to talk about the fact that wisdom is greater than obsessive plotting. Wisdom is greater than obsessive plotting. What sort of plotting might we be doing? Well, we might be plotting revenge. I, I want to say though, wisdom we see in this story is that evasion is okay and safety is a priority. David Trust himself to God, but he doesn't just stand out in the open and say, come get me. He has a mortal enemy who wants to kill him. And running away might be the wisest thing you can do. Safety must be a priority. And as I mentioned this, if there's a situation where i would be explicit, if there's a situation where there's domestic violence, we would say to everyone, wisdom is be safe. Wisdom is to be safe. Get out and get safe. Wisdom is to get safe. And we also see that revenge fantasy is not good for you. Do not be plotting your revenge. Do not obsess on the harm of the person who is against you. It will not do good for your soul. Wisdom is greater than obsessive plotting. Number two, self-control is better than getting physical. Watch the worldly advice. Remember what happened to David? He's in the back of the cave. Here's the guy. Very awkward situation. And what are they saying? Mate, get in there. Go do it. Get in there. It seems like it's the best idea in the world. Here's the guy. It's, it's on a plate. Go put the sword in, quite literally. And I was talking after the service this morning with someone who was in a difficult situation with a boss at work. And they were saying, everyone around me is encouraging me to do, to do bad, to get back, to get revenge on this guy. Now, that's worldly advice, and we shouldn't follow it. We should show self-control, and we must resist anger. It can't be that we get so overwhelmed by the advice of the world that we end up either getting physical or getting even. Don't do it. It won't honour God. Thirdly, how should we act? We should act in humility. Humility is better than seeking power. David doesn't try and leverage a a, a battle against Saul. Instead, he entrusts himself to God. Remember what he said? May the Lord, may the Lord, may the Lord. We need to take a humble attitude where we say, God, you see me. You see perfectly. Rather than me seeking to vindicate myself before other people. Sorry, the language is a bit much. Vindicate myself. In other words, I don't need to make myself appear right in front of all of you because my judge is who? it's God. I'm not going to work to make myself look right in front of everyone here. I'm going to entrust myself to God. That takes humility. That takes humility. And I want to encourage you to let your conscience act with your judge in mind. Don't do stuff that you'll regret. And if you do, and I was talking to another guy, and he was saying, we've been chatting about this person. And I said, did you enjoy it a lot? He said, yep. I said, if you have an enjoyable conversation, enjoyable conversation about all the wrongs that someone has done to you, you're probably sinning. Don't enjoy it. And if you do, and I had this experience, if you do, repent. Let your conscience be your guide. And if that isn't good enough, Jesus adds one more thing for us. I want you to hear this because it's really easy. Is that all right? Really easy. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, that's wrong, it's not easy, it's incredibly difficult. Have a listen. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That sounds about right, doesn't it? Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. No problems. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Can you pray good in the place of evil? It's hard to do. I think in Romans 12, uh, it's set up really well for us. If you have a misunderstanding, if you have an, an intractable enemy, Romans 12 gives us some great advice. It says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. What do I want for you, church? I want you to get into a position where as far as it depends on you, you live at peace with all people. As far as it depends on you. If we do this, we'll be living a life that is truly new, a life that is distinctly different. And in order to do it, may God help us, and may we help one another. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, these are hard things. When we are wronged, we long for justice. When there's misunderstanding, we love for it to be put right. Father, help us to be wise, help us to be humble, help us to entrust our cause to you, our great judge, and be merciful, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, Uh, there's some stuff about David and some stuff about uh, enemies do we have any questions? Thanks, Jeff. Do we have any questions arising from that tonight? Yeah, here and then here. Uh, Ethan, just in front of you. Yeah, Ethan. when you just then said if you're enjoying a conversation about stuff that someone's done wrong to you, like, what does that mean? What does that mean? I was in a situation a while ago where um, uh, someone was in a position of leadership and um, they that, that weren't, weren't making some, some good decisions. And I remember myself and another, uh, another um, colleague, um, talking about that person and the things that were going wrong, and I think enjoying the conversation in private as, oh, we get this, we have a better view of this than this other person. And my, honestly, it was just sin. And, uh, and we enjoyed the conversation because it was like, you get this, you understand it, you can see, yeah, we can see this problem, and I, I look, honestly, at the end of it, I just said to my mate, I said, look, actually, we, we crossed the line here. We've got to repent. And I actually, we actually spent some time praying together and just said, this, this isn't right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, Alec, at the back, yeah. I'm uh, putting aside that Saul was out to kill David. Um, Small fact. Yep, yeah, keep going. Was Saul actually a good king? Um, was Saul a good king? What, oh, sorry, it's just, that's what David seems to imply in his lament. Yeah. So apart from what we see in the story, yeah. what all of the rest of Israel thought he was a pretty good king? It's a really interesting question. I, I think it's interesting. David picks up and he says, he, hey, daughters of Jerusalem, celebrate because he clothed you with scarlet and, and gold. I suspect the, the military victories that Saul had resulted in wealth for Israel. And so if you're an everyday Israelite, I would think that you actually had some good outcomes come from having a centralised king in the person of Saul. We also don't see in Israel something that is going to be absolutely everywhere in the kings of Israel coming up, which is Saul doesn't turn them to idolatry. They don't turn aside to other gods under his leadership. That's actually pretty good in the history of Israel. That's pretty unique. Um, And so I would say, um, is Saul a good king? I'm not sure, there are some redeeming qualities to him, and he was their first go, and so he was better than the other kings that they hadn't had before. I think, uh, so it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a mixture, and I think if you're an everyday Israelite, you would probably say, on balance, things worked out better than not under Saul. Does that make sense? It's a long answer. Does that, does that help? Good. Yeah, another question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, getting a good workout, Jeff. Um, We were just discussing before tonight's sermon about Colossians 3 um, and how are we uh, households and earthly uh, earthly masters and we're to sort of submit to them. Um, just, you touched on it a little bit, but just can you clarify how we can be good witnesses even though our earthly masters, so bosses or leaders or husbands or parents might be a little bit dodgy. Yeah, that's really helpful. Okay, so uh, how do we do well at respecting those in authority when they might not be doing such a good job? How do we do that? Uh, There's there's a a way that the Americans talk about where they talk about respecting the position, but not the person. There's something in that that's helpful, and we want to just add a little bit more Christian stuff to that. Um, So what you can do is, I'm saluting the President, the Office of President, rather than the person who is occupying the presidency. Do you see the difference between those two things? So I'm respecting the fact that there is an appointed leader over our nation, even if I might not necessarily respect the person. Okay, So respect the position, but not the person. I think that the challenge for that for most people is, when we say respect the position, but not the person, it means that we can go hard on hating and disrespecting them and have a little conscience band-aid that says, but I'm respecting the position. So I think we need to kind of do better than that. Um, I think that the Bible encourages us to give honour to those who are in leadership and authority over us. Whether that's parents, people at church, or in our workplace, we're to honour those in authority. That will be hard for us at times, and part of it is, am I seeking to undermine or to speak ill of? And if I am, I'm sinning. Am I praying for those who who might be my enemy, praying God's good for them? And if I can do that, I think we are honouring, both in our language and in our prayer life, the people who are in authority over us. And so it may not be easy, and they may not be, to be honest, worthy of respect, but we should act in an honouring way towards them. Does that make sense? So I think for husbands and wives, watch your public language about one another. I think for leadership, similarly, watch your public language and check in with your prayer life. If it never crosses over to for the good of the other, you're probably disrespecting them. Make sense?